Morning, everybody. Morning. If you've been with us over the last couple months, uh, when I've been up to preach, we've been looking at the Old Testament book of Zechariah. And if you've been here, we began our time in Zechariah in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, where we saw three things. We saw God's cautioning, where God warned his people against being like their sinful and rebellious fathers who ignored God and his prophets and as a result were banished from his presence in the Babylonian invasion and exile in 586 BC. God's cautioning and we saw God's calling where God beckoned his people to return to him after they had turned away from him. And we saw God's promise that he is coming for his people. He said, return to me and I will return to you. And what we talked about was how all of Zechariah just illustrates and applies this promise that God is coming for his people through oracles and poems and night visions or dreams in which Zechariah was shown symbolic images of what God's coming, this, this reuniting of heaven and earth means for the people of God. And last time, we looked at Zechariah's first night vision in chapter one, verses seven through 17, which I titled, The Man Among the Myrtles, where we saw Christ seated on a red horse, standing in a valley, a hollow, a deathly deep with his people, surrounded by myrtle trees, which represent paradise, restoration, life, God's provision, God's presence, and God's promise. And so these myrtle trees springing up from the hollow communicated two truths. Number one, though God's people are presently in a deathly deep, God is with them, and paradise is very near. And number two, though God's people are presently in a deathly deep, God is with them, and there is abundant life in his presence even now. And now this morning we'll be looking at the second of Zechariah's eight night visions in chapter one, verses 18, 18 through 21, which I've titled The Horn-Crushing Craftsman. And this night vision reminds me of something I saw at the Woodland Park Zoo when I was maybe five or six years old. It was uh, my first time visiting the zoo, or at least the first time I can remember, and I remember being so excited to see the monkeys because monkeys were my favorite animal. And monkeys were my favorite animal because our family had gone to a Chinese restaurant where on the placemats on the table, they showed the 12 animals of the Chinese zodiac. And I learned that the year I was born, 1992, was the year of the monkey. And for some reason in my little boy brain, that made me feel strongly and mystically connected to monkeys in some way. But when we got over the monkeys at the zoo, there was already someone there that seemed strongly connected to the monkeys. And it was a girl, probably in her late teens, early 20s, whom a particular monkey behind the glass was clearly infatuated with. This monkey was all over the glass, following her wherever she went and putting his hands wherever she put her hands and then running and swinging around, showing off for her and then returning to the glass again. And I was super jealous of this girl because I wanted that kind of connection. I wanted to make a little monkey friend that day. But it quickly became obvious that I wasn't nearly as jealous as the monkey was because when this girl's boyfriend started to get close to the girl, 
The monkey went nuts, screaming and beating the glass as if to say, get out of here, she's mine. This is one of the craziest things my little eyes had ever seen. But even as a little kid, I knew how silly and absurd it was for this monkey to be trying to impress this girl and scare off this guy because no matter what he did, at the end of the day, he'd still be sitting behind the glass, unable to do a thing. And in a way, in a way, I think this is kind of like how silly and absurd notions of human impressiveness and power are in a world where we sit behind the proverbial glass of the inescapable providence, the sovereign orchestration of all things, people, and events, the inescapable providence of the all-powerful God who is over us. You know, many men think they are king of the jungle, but at the end of the day, all their screaming and chest beating and self-exaltation, it's all silly and futile posturing, and in the eyes of the holy God, it probably just looks like a bunch of monkeys flinging their own poop at each other. <laughs> and this is what we're gonna be talking about this morning. Not monkeys flinging their poop at each other. We're gonna be speaking about the futility and consequence of human pride and self-exaltation. But let me pray for us before we get going this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, your word is truth and life and infinitely interesting and at times gloriously complicated. But we thank you for your Holy Spirit who illuminates your word and, and helps our little minds to grasp it. And Lord, as we open your word this morning to read a passage that is in some ways complicated, God, I just ask for a special measure of grace upon my lips and upon the ears and hearts of this congregation, Lord God. We ask this in your name, amen. All right, if you brought your Bibles, please turn to Zechariah chapter one. Zechariah chapter one. If you turn to the New Testament book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, turn back a couple books, you'll find Zechariah. Zechariah chapter one. We're looking at his second night vision, verses 18 through 21. Here's what he says. He says, And I, Zechariah, lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. Four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head, and these four craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So the night vision begins in verse 18 with four horns, four horns. And then in verse 19a, Zechariah asks the interpreting angel who's with him, 
The same interpreting angel we saw in the last night vision, he asks him, what are these? And the interpreting angel responds in verse 19b, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah. And then if we skip down to verse 21, we see two more bits of information regarding the horn's actions, and one more bit of information regarding the horn's identity. Regarding their actions, verse 21 says that their oppression against God's people was such that no one raised his head, and in so doing, they lifted up their horns, their heads. So God's people squashed heads, and the horns raised heads. Quick story to illustrate this. When I was in second or third grade, I had a neighbor friend who my parents weren't too fond of named Ray. And one day, Ray and I were sitting on the swing set in my backyard, and one of us, don't remember who, but one of us had the brilliant idea to go over to the fence of a neighbor's house where there were some high school boys in the backyard behind the fence and to yell insults at them through the fence and then run away as fast as we could so that they wouldn't know who did it. Stuff like this seemed to happen when I was hanging out with Ray. (laughs) And so we did it, but we couldn't run away as fast as we had hoped. And the boys jumped over the fence and caught up to us and grabbed us and threw us to the ground. And one kid literally put his shoe on my face and told me to lick his shoe. I don't need to finish that story. The point is that in that moment, in that moment, my head was squashed literally and figuratively under the dominance of another's whose was raised in triumph. All right, moving on. Um, And regarding the horde's identity, verse 21 identifies these horns with nations. And then lastly, in verse 20, we see four craftsmen, four horns, four craftsmen. And verse 21 says that they've come to terrify the horn nations and cast them down. So, all this raises a few questions like, who are these nations? And why are these nations symbolized by horns? And why has God sent craftsmen to destroy these horns? And what in the world does this all mean for us today? So, let's look at our first question. Who are these nations? Who are these nations? Well, the text says that these nations scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, meaning they displaced the people of Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And in the present historical context, this immediately makes me think of the nations who scattered them in the recent past. The nation of Assyria, who exiled the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. And the nation of Babylon, who exiled the people of Babylon, uh, sorry, the people of Judah in 586 BC. And the nation of Medo-Persia, which was a super kingdom formed by the alliance of the nations of Media and Persia, and who, during the time of Zechariah's prophesying, are presently dominating and ruling over the people of Judah. But another interpretation suggests that well, they view these nations in the context of all Old Testament history, and so they think that these nations are all of their past national enemies from the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. That's another interpretation. 
but still another interpretation views these nations more in terms of a future predictive prophecy and in connection with the four nations that are depicted in the visions of Daniel, who prophesied just a couple decades before Zechariah, or, or lived a few decades just before Zechariah. And these visions are in chapters seven and eight where each nation arises to conquer the nation that ruled before it, and each nation becomes more and more powerful and a greater oppressor than the last, and those nations are Babylon, whose empire lasted from 625 to 539 BC until they were conquered by the Medo-Persians under King Cyrus II, and Medo-Persia, whose empire lasted from 539 to 331 BC until they were conquered by the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and Greece, whose empire lasted from 331 to 63 BC until they were conquered by the Romans under King Augustus, also called Octavian, and finally Rome, whose empire lasted from 63 BC to 476 AD. But still another interpretation suggests that these nations aren't literal nation states at all, but are symbols of the four directions from which oppression comes against the people of God, which is just a metaphoric way of saying the totality of all oppression. That one's a little hard to understand. It's, so basically the four directions are a metaphor for all the oppression that comes from all angles and is symbolized by these four horn nations. So a metaphor within a symbol. And interpretations abound. So, who are the nations that are in view here in Zechariah? Are they even literal nations, nation states? I think we need some more clues. So let's look at our second question, and that is, why are these nations symbolized by horns? Why are these nations symbolized by horns? A horn is a very interesting image, isn't it? Very animalish and bestial and nature red in tooth and claw-ish, if you know what I mean. And we know that in the animal kingdom, the beast with the biggest horn is usually the strongest and most dominant, right? And actually, there's a lot more of this animal imagery in the book of Zechariah, not only in describing the enemies of God's people, but also describing God's people themselves, who later in the book are referred to repeatedly as God's sheep flock. And so, the most immediate image that these horns conjure up is that of something like a longhorn bull thrusting its horns upward as it tramples God's flock of sheep to the ground. Now, interestingly, this horn language is used quite a bit in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes it's used positively, positively to speak of strength and might. For example, in Psalm chapter 18, David talks about God being the horn of his salvation, the strength of his deliverance from his enemies. And sometimes horns are used positively to speak of rule and dominion. For example, in Psalm chapter 132, verse 17, God says, I will make a horn to sprout for David, and on him his crown will shine. And sometimes horns are used positively to speak of triumph and victory. For example, in Psalm 89, 
verses 22 through 24, God says of King David, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him, I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. And you may recall that the ram's horn called the shofar was blown before the walls came a tumbling down at Jericho to signal Israel's imminent victory. But sometimes horns are used negatively to speak of self-exaltation and pride. And actually many commentators point to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, which was a giant horn-shaped ziggurat, the Tower of Babel as the first scriptural example of the horn as a negative symbol of self-exaltation and pride. And as an interesting little side note, as historical note, uh, many pagan temples in, in ancient Babylon, in ancient Assyria, in Egypt, in Greece, in Rome, many pagan temples were constructed with horns on top. And pagan gods were often depicted wearing crowns with horns. And even today, in modern pagan religions like, like Wicca and witchcraft and druidry, you'll see lots of horn imagery. So the horn has been around for a long time as a symbol of power and dominion and pride for a long time. And Psalm chapter 75 talks about how the wicked raise their horns to the heavens pridefully exalting themselves. And as we see here in Zechariah, these four horns are lifted up and exalted not by God and not in the name of God and not for the glory of God, but by self and in the name of self and for the glory of self. And so these nations here in Zechariah are symbolized by horns, at least in part, at least in part because they're, they're strong and they have dominion and they're lifted up, exalted in prideful triumph over the people of God whose heads are squashed under their feet. But here in Zechariah's night vision, we learn that these horned nations will not triumph over God's people forever because God will send craftsmen to terrify them and cast them down. And we see similar language in Psalm chapter 75 where God talks about how he will cut off all the horns of the wicked. And what happens if an animal loses or breaks a horn? Well, he immediately moves down in the dominance hierarchy because he can't defend himself anymore and he can't attract a mate. It makes him impotent in more than one sense of the word. And what a picture of what these craftsmen are coming to do. They're coming to reduce these ones strong and dominant and prideful horns to nothing. They're coming to level their ivory towers to a plane. So, do we know who these nations are yet? Not quite. So let's look at our third question. That question is, why has God sent craftsmen to destroy these horns? Why has God sent craftsmen to destroy these horns? Why craftsmen? Hmm? Why not 
hunters or warriors or something other than craftsmen. You know who craftsmen are in the Bible? They're artisans. They're people who labor to create things out of wood or metal or stone. And, and these are the people God is gonna send to dehorn these bestial horn nations? They're like Tim and Al from Home Improvement, not Rambo. <laughs> I mean, I guess they'll have the tools, but, but still, it seems like the wrong metaphor, right? Well, it does seem like the wrong metaphor if, if this is all the information we're dealing with. But there's one more bit of information the Bible gives us. One more bit of information, which I think explains the craftsmen and the horns and the number of horns and ultimately the nations as well. And that bit of information is this. In the second half of the book of Exodus, okay, so after the crossing of the Red Sea, after the Ten Commandments are given at Mount Sinai, we see the very first time anyone in the Old Testament is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And who is it? It's the craftsmen. The craftsmen. And why does God fill them with his spirit? Exodus chapter 31 verses four through five tells us to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft, which, side note, is amazing in and of itself because it tells us that God doesn't just care about practical things, he cares about beautiful things as well. But, but here in Exodus, this spirit-filled gift of craftsmanship is given for the building of the tabernacle, where God's presence would dwell among his people, and the objects in and surrounding the tabernacle. And one of those objects inside the courtyard of the tabernacle was a big half-cube hibachi grill type thing called the altar, upon which the priests would offer daily animal sacrifices on behalf of the sins of God's people. And listen to the design description that God gives to Moses and the spirit-filled craftsmen for the construction of the altar. In Exodus chapter 27, verses one and two, God says, you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So another place we see four horns appear in the Old Testament is upon the four corners of the altar built by the craftsmen. And when the smoke of the sacrifices rose from this horned altar, it was a way of ascribing all strength and power and dominion unto him, unto the one whom the smoke rose to. And this was said to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so, you see, it was a problem and a very displeasing aroma when in 1 Kings chapter 12, King Jeroboam of the northern kingdom of Israel 
built horned altars to false gods in the Israelite cities of Dan and Bethel, Bethel, which ironically means house of God, which is why we see the prophet Amos pronouncing God's judgment upon Israel in Amos chapter three, verse 14, where he says, on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the false altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And what was God saying here? He was saying that he would show Israel's false gods to be impotent, and that he would cut off Israel's false worship, this false ascription of strength and power and dominion unto something who was not God. And of course, the reason God desired to cut off Israel's false worship and not just let them persist in it and and give them over to their sin was because God graciously intended to restore true worship among his people. He intended to make this desecrated house of false gods back into Bethel, Bethel, the house of God, for his glory and for his people's good. And so, I'm seeing all these connections, okay? And it's leading me to conclude that the four-horned altar built by the craftsmen is the clue that tells us that these craftsmen here in Zechariah, question number three, are metaphors ultimately for the cutting off of false worship and the restoration of true worship. And that the horns Question number two, are a symbol not only of strength and dominion and power, but are most precisely a symbol of false worship, a a false and prideful ascription of strength and power and dominion unto something or someone other than the Lord. And the fact that, that there are four horns makes this altar worship connection very strong. And I also think that the four-horned altar tells us that the identity of these horned nations, question number one, is big enough to include any and every self-exalting, God-denouncing, oppressive nation that is guilty of prideful, false worship. And so I think the identity of these horned nations would include Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and Greece, and many other self-exalting, God-denouncing, oppressive nations who scattered God's people. But I think it's even bigger than that and would include Judah and Israel as well. And why? Because in the final analysis, think, think about this, in the final analysis, it was not the enemies of God's people that scattered them. It was the sins of God's people that scattered them, right? It was their faithlessness and their false worship and their plugging of the ears to God's prophets in a brazen and prideful rebellion against the law and commands of their God. And of course this was a physical scattering 
a physical displacement from their land as God's punishment for their sin. But long before that, long before that, there was an even worse scattering, a spiritual scattering, a spiritual displacement of the people from their God. And it happened when they, like prodigal sons and daughters, turned their backs to God, overthrowing his gracious authority over them to be their own authority and subverting his good purposes for them, for their own purposes, and they walked the other way, scattering their own souls into the far country. This is, by the way, why the book of Zechariah, which takes place more than 16 years after the Judeans had returned to their land from exile, this is why the book of Zechariah opens with a call to return. Because even when God's people found themselves back in the land and thought to themselves, finally, we've returned, they hadn't really returned at all because they still kept God at arm's length and had yet to return to him. We talked about this when we looked at the book of Haggai, how God's people were back in their lands now, but were still in a kind of exile, a spiritual exile, an exile much worse than Babylon, a Babylon of the soul. And that's, what makes this night vision so amazing because the message God is communicating to the Judeans is this. Judah, I see all the oppression you have suffered by the hands of many strong, dominant, and self-exalting nations and know this, they will not get away with any of it. In my hands, they will be reduced to nothing. And Judeans, instead of facing the same fate as those prideful nations, a fate that you, a prideful nation yourself, a stiff-necked, disobedient, rebellious people so deserve, instead, I am going to show you grace. And why? Simply because I have set my affection upon you and have chosen you and have promised to never leave or forsake you as your God and because I want you. I want your hearts and I will have them. I will have them, God says. But how? How would God get to their hearts? How would God cut off their false worship and restore true worship among them? Well, ultimately, he'd do it by sending one more craftsman, a carpenter, not to build an impressive altar upon which animal sacrifices would resume among the people of God, but rather to become himself the final sacrifice for sin upon a pagan altar, a Roman cross. This craftsman is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And he's the spotless lamb 
whose sacrifice was sufficient to make an actual, complete atonement for sin in the way that the blood of bulls and goats could not do. And he's the king of kings who, like the prince and the pauper, humbly made himself low to lift us up. And he's the great high priest who is the one mediator between God and man. And he's the judge who's coming back to pronounce his final verdict upon every self-exalting, God-denouncing nation and people of the earth. He's the great I am, the self-existent, all-powerful, and only God who will finally, finally cast all his enemies, including the great enemy himself, the devil, Satan, whom Revelation depicts as a monstrous red dragon with seven crowned heads and ten horns. He will cast them all into a lake of unquenchable hellfire. He is Jesus Christ, the ultimate and sovereign false worship destroyer and true worship restorer. Amen. Amen. And the reason, the reason this ultimate fulfillment of Zechariah's second night vision is so important is because it's Christ's slaying of the great dragon and every heaven-challenging power, which is the first step in God's final plan to bring, as we talked about in Zechariah's first night vision, a paradise restoration to all the earth. Let me say that again. It's Christ's slaying of the great dragon and every heaven-challenging power, which is the first step in God's final plan to bring a paradise restoration to all the earth. This is the first step in the eschatological or end times, the eschatological reunion of heaven and earth, the the reunion of God's domain and mankind's domain as one holy space again, just as it was in the Garden of Eden. That is ultimately what Zechariah's second night vision is all about. And so, as Christians today, as God's people living in a time when we are still awaiting this eschatological cutting off of all evil, what does this all mean for us right now? And how do we respond to Zechariah's second night vision? I thought of 10 ways. 10 ways we can apply Zechariah's second night vision to our lives right now. And we'll go through these quickly in the few minutes we have left. And I'll phrase it this way. Because we have the promise that God will finally cut off all false worship and every worldly and heaven-challenging power, number one, we can praise God for allowing us to see how this story begins and ends. 
From the book of Genesis, we know how this world was created, how this story began, and we know how sin entered into the world, and we know what God promised to do about that sin. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, where he said that one was coming to crush the head of the serpent, and of course, that was Jesus at the cross. And we know from Zechariah's second night vision, along with details provided in the book of Revelation, that though sin is still a reality in our world today, and though the serpent is still breathing today, one day sin will not be a reality because God is going to do away with it forever and recreate this world anew. And one day the head of the serpent will be severed by the serpent slayer, Jesus Christ. We can praise God for allowing us to see how this story began and ends, begins and ends. Number two, because we have the promise that God will finally cut off all false worship and every worldly and heaven-challenging power, we can trust that God sees all. Sometimes when we see injustices being committed in the world, and especially when they're committed against us, we can be tempted to wonder if God even knows what's going on. Because often it seems like evildoers are, as we say, getting away with murder. But because we know that God is a just judge who will deal with everyone's sins accordingly, if not paid at the cross, paid at the final judgment, we can trust that every evildoer is caught in the act and will ultimately get away with nothing. We can trust that God sees all. Number three, because we have the promise that God will finally cut off all false worship and every worldly and heaven-challenging power, we can trust that God is sovereign over all. As we talked about earlier, God's providence, his sovereign orchestration of all things, people, and events, God's providence is inescapable. Nothing can thwart his plans, no one can stay his hand, even Satan sits behind the glass of his inescapable providence. And so, though we struggle to understand why God allows us to be sinned against or to be persecuted for our faith, we can trust that it is he who is allowing it because he is in ultimate control of everything and is guiding it all toward the end and culmination of his purposes here on earth. And we know what that end is. We can trust that God is sovereign over all. Number four, because we have the promise that God will finally cut off all false worship and every worldly and heaven-challenging power, we can leave all vengeance in God's hands. And something that's super important to, to know here, to understand is that the thing that makes sin so heinous and damnable is that all of it is a grievous offense against God. All sin is an affront to his holiness and his rule and authority and his glory. And so when God says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's because God is the most offended by sin, even sin done against us. 
And so we truly can leave all vengeance in his hands because all vengeance belongs to him alone. Number five, because we have the promise that God will finally cut off all false worship in every worldly and heaven-challenging power, we can see deified human glory for what it really is. As we talked about earlier, many men think they are king of the jungle, but at the end of the day, all their screaming and chest beating and self-exaltation, it's all absurd. In the eyes of the sovereign, all-powerful God, they're not even monkeys. They're worms. They're nothing. They're tiny, unimpressive, insignificant creatures in light of him. And so when we view these strong and powerful people of the world more and more through the lens of scripture, they'll seem less and less impressive. And as a result, they'll have less of an influence over us. And they'll seem less and less intimidating. And they'll exert less of a fear over us. We can see deified human glory for what it really is. Number six, because we have the promise that God will finally cut off all false worship and every worldly and heaven-challenging power, we can humble ourselves before God. Jesus said that all who exalt themselves will be humbled, brought low, and so we ought to seek humility, lowliness, submissiveness before God, knowing that one day every knee will be bowed before him, either willfully or forcefully, either by the bending of the knee or by the breaking of the knee. And if that in any way sounds harsh to us, then we haven't even begun to understand the holiness and majesty of God which our sin so deeply offends. And we haven't even begun to understand the dark depths of our depravity and wickedness, the rottenness that is our flesh, which only the grace of God can defeat. And we haven't even begun to understand the gospel, which tells us that our sin is so bad that an innocent man had to suffer and die for it in order to save us from it. can humble ourselves before God. Number seven, because we have the promise that God will finally cut off all false worship and every worldly and heaven-challenging power, we can thank God for his common grace. You know, a lot of people complain about a lot of things in the world not being fair, but something I rarely hear is the acknowledgement that it is so incomprehensibly unfair that God has lavished upon this world such grace and mercy that he does not obliterate us all in a second for our pride and wickedness. Theologians refer to this as God's common grace. It's a grace he gives to all because all have sinned and deserve nothing but death and separation from God forever, but instead, God puts breath in all of our lungs. And instead, he graciously blesses us all in various ways. 
and he graciously gives us all new days to live in and enjoy, and he graciously sets his glory on display for all of us to see day by day. We can thank God for his common grace. Number eight, because we have the promise that God will finally cut off all false worship in every worldly and heaven-challenging power, we can thank God for his special grace. Though God presently gives common grace to all and is presently restraining his hand of justice, one day the gavel will fall as God pronounces his final verdict over the wicked. And one day grace will no more be found. And one day every unredeemed sinner will get what he has deserved all along, justice. What spares us from this final judgment is what theologians refer to as God's special grace, which of course is found in the Savior Jesus and in the salvation he accomplished for us when he was given over to the worldly powers of evil who crushed and destroyed him and the justice of God who poured out the fullness of his wrath against us upon him. We can thank God for his special grace, which is in Jesus Christ. Number nine, we can boast in the cross. In some of the final words of the letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When the accomplishments of Calvary become our own, we become crucified, Paul says, to the valuations of this prideful, self-promoting world which says, what have you accomplished? Huh? Do people know your name? Do people think highly of you? Because that's what matters. The Apostle Paul says, none of that matters. None of that matters. I could care less what people think of me. I could care less that people know my name. And my greatest accomplishment isn't even something I've achieved. It's something I've only received through the cross of Christ. Oh, we can boast in the cross. And number 10, we can thank God that one day our horns will be lifted up. After God gives the threat, I will cut off the horns of the wicked, Psalm chapter 75 closes with this promise, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Today, the wicked prosper. Today, our heads may be squashed, but one day it will not be so because Jesus is returning. And he is returning to deliver us from all evil, including the evil within. And he is returning to squash every heaven-challenging power. And he is returning to lift our weary heads with the same power by which he was raised from the dead. And to that, 
I say, Maranatha. Maranatha, come Lord. Come Lord Jesus. Bring your kingdom and establish your throne among us as the highest height. And awake my soul, arise. The day is dawning. Fix your eyes upon the faithful and true, the King who's coming soon. Will you stand with me as we close our service in prayer? Lord Jesus, it is it is great news that you are coming back again, that heaven is meeting earth in a way that has not been seen since Eden. It is great news that one day you will reign as king over all the earth and over your people whose heads you have raised in glory on that day. Lord, as we await that great day, may we remember that the greatest news is that you have already come 2,000 years ago to live and die and rise for ruined sinners in order to, through faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, restore true worship among us. This is the greatest news, that we who were once false worshipers, idolaters, and enemies to your rule we can now worship you rightly in spirit and in truth as ones you now call friends. Lord, I ask as your people that you would set us ablaze with a passion to reach the lost, to reach those who are still your enemies, that they may be changed by your grace as we were when we were your enemies. Lord, I ask that you would even give us the grace to pray for our enemies. Lord Jesus. And Lord, give us the grace to be faithful worshipers that, that we would not fall back into the idolatry you have so graciously freed us from and that your awesome name would be lifted high and exalted within us for your glory alone. Amen. Amen. Go in the grace of God.